right. Good morning, beloved. Who's ready to get into God's word this morning? Anyone? <laughs> That's good news. Turn with me then to the Gospel of John chapter 16. John 16, and, and this morning we'll be uh, <coughs> finishing up not just the chapter, but this uh, whole incredible section uh, that began all the way back in um, chapter 13, often referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. And, we consider our verses uh, before us, we are once again reminded that these are some of the final words our Lord speaks to his closest disciples. The three and a half years of public ministry has ended. That was chronicled for us in the first 12 chapters of uh, the Gospel of John. But in these final hours spread over chapters 13 through 16, we see Jesus turn his ministry solely onto the 11 with all kinds of promises, instructions, warnings. It is late into Thursday night, and in a matter of just a few short hours from now, our Lord will be arrested in Gethsemane, and on Friday, he will be crucified. So at least on this side of the cross, these are the Lord's final instructions as he continues to comfort the 11 as he prepares them for what lies ahead. And what is so remarkable about our Lord is though the agony of Gethsemane and the unimaginable torment of Golgotha awaited our Lord, we do not find him defeated. We do not find him shrinking back from what lies ahead. Rather, we find our Lord with an unwavering confidence in the sovereign purpose and work his Father had sent him to accomplish. Now, the disciples, on the other hand, are a different story altogether. Uh, because although the Lord had promised all these divine, heavenly uh, blessings and assurances, Jesus keeps talking about being delivered over the chief priests and ultimately to the Gentiles where they will flog him and kill them. And on top of that, Jesus has said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. And then we saw in the beginning of this chapter that they will put you out of the synagogues and indeed in hours coming when they will kill you and believe that they are doing it in service to God. So we see throughout these last couple of chapters, worry, anxiety beginning to creep in on these disciples. They are confused. Is Jesus leaving? Is he coming? Scripture said sorrow had filled their hearts. And, and while we sit here today on this side of the cross, um, I think we can understand some of these guys' angst. I mean, Jesus tells them outright, do you think I have come to give peace? No, I tell you division. Households will be divided. Fathers against sons, daughters against their mothers. The world has hated me. Now it's going to hate you and kill you. Jesus didn't sugarcoat any of this. And while Jesus was on earth with them, they saw the hatred of the world, the system of the world coming at the Lord, the, the religious leaders plotting and planning to kill him. But up to this point, all of this hatred has just been squarely directed 
at the Lord. And now that he's leaving, it will be turned towards those who confess his name. Not a lot has changed. But up to this point, Jesus has handled all of it. He's taken the hatred. He's taken and fixed everything that was going on. In fact, Jesus had done everything for these men. He supplied them with their every need. While he's been with them, he's loved them. A love that they had never, ever experienced before or after. While he's been with them, he has filled their lives with someone to believe in faith. Peter said back in John 6, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And while Jesus was with them, no matter what was happening around them, they had hope. But now that he's leaving them, and they just don't know if they're going to be able to make it. And so our Lord closes out this section kind of retouching over all of these key themes that he's been discussing as we once again see the heart of the Lord Jesus Christ as he reassures them of three truths. Number one, he reassures them of the Father's love for them. The Father's love, which then led to number two, strengthened their faith. That led to number three, hope. Love, faith, hope are, of course, central to the Christian faith. Paul uses it multiple times in Thessalonians. And, of course, you all know 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now, faith, hope, love abides. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Well, let's read our verses this morning once through together. And then we can look at these three sections that I've broken them up into beginning in verse 25 we'll read right to the end of the chapter and it begins with the words of our Lord he said I have said these things to you in figures of speech the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech but will tell you plainly about the father in that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you'll be scattered each to his own homes and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone for the father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Throughout uh, these last couple of chapters, the overarching theme has been love. 
the love God has for his own. And in verses 25 to 27, that theme continues, though not necessarily obvious at first, as Jesus reassures the 11 that though the world may hate you, you have nothing to fear for the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. But before we get to that, let's notice in verse 25 how this whole section opens. He says in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. What does that mean in figures of speech? It's uh, the Greek word paromia, and it refers to um, a veiled but pointed saying. Veiled but pointed. It could be a proverb that would be referred to as one of these words. But in other words, the meaning is not immediately apparent. It must be diligently searched out. We might call that even a parable. And we've seen Jesus use these figures of speech uh, throughout the gospel of John, haven't we? Uh, for instance, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the people didn't get it. They thought that he was surely talking about the temple there in Jerusalem. But of course, verse 21 tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. His body. And when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, he tells him, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus asked him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus, of course, is speaking figuratively of a spiritual birth, a new birth. He's described himself as living water. Again, figures of speech. Or how about when he says in John 6:53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Seems talking about cannibalism. Here, of course not. Uh, these are just some of the figures of speech we see in just John's gospel. In fact, in the other gospels, we see Jesus refer to them as parables. Basically the same idea, slightly different word, parabole. A parable is defined also as a proverb. It actually means to lay something down alongside a truth for the purpose of understanding. And that is true. I mean, some will say, well, Jesus taught in parables so to teach relatable stories. Um, yes, but Jesus also taught in parables as an act of judgment on others as well. In fact, Jesus will tell you plainly and clearly why he taught in parables. Because they ask him in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10. Oh, I forgot to click, I guess. It says, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And the Lord answered them to you, speaking of the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to one who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, 
the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart have grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see in your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Um, yet even the disciples uh, failed to understand much of Jesus' teaching. We see him saying many times and explaining it to him. It wasn't until after the Lord's death and resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they finally understood Jesus' full ministry, his person, his, his work on, his on the cross, the resurrection, um, the ascension. And then we see on the day of Pe Pentecost, Peter just stands up and, and preaches in front of those 3,000 men. He takes them right through the Old Testament to the cross and the resurrection. And scripture says that it pierced those men's heart. They repented of their sins and they were baptized that day. And so back to our verse there in verse 25, Jesus says, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, figures of speech. So the disciples before the cross, they're unable to, to fully grasp the profound significance of the son's work of redemption certainly nor did they comprehend the depth of the father's love expressed in sending the son to die as a sacrifice for sin but the hour is coming jesus says when the, the, the veil will be lifted and i will tell you plainly about the father plainly about the father the father and when that hour comes the disciples will fully understand everything there is to know, Jesus' relationship to the Father and the Father's love for them. Just an amazing promise here. Um, and, and by the way, if you're wondering if, if John, uh, for example, was ever able to fully understand all that the Lord would have to show him the relation between the Son and the Father, and um, just go back and read John chapter 1 again those first 18 verses especially of this gospel verse 1 in the beginning was the word remember the, the logos was in the beginning the word was with God and the word was God he was both with God and he was God he was in the beginning with God and ho logos the word was with God Prostantheon, Theos, and Holagos. So, Father, Son, uh, coexistent, co-eternal, uh, sitting in all eternity past. It actually means Prostantheon is like face to face. The Father and Son sitting beautifully. The Word was with God. It is. It's just beautifully amazing. Well, let's get down to verses 26 and 27. Jesus continues to reassure the disciples of the Father's great love for him, first through clarity of understanding, and then he says, in that day. What day? When the spirit of truth comes. Pentecost, when the veil uh, would be torn in two, in that day, 
you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. <laughs> Up until now, whatever they needed, the Son prayed to the Father on their behalf. He, he provided everything for them, but when the Spirit comes, you are going to have direct access to God. Total access. You don't need me to go for you. You will go directly to God. And on the cross, uh, immediately after the Lord gives up his spirit, what do we see? We see the veil of the temple torn into two. And that's the inner sanctuary. The, the holies of holies would have been behind that huge 60-foot long veil, totally exposed. Only up until then, the, whole, the, the high priest could enter in there on the Day of Atonement one day a year. And now you are entering into the very presence of God. But when that veil was torn in half, it symbolizes that the way into God's presence has now been opened to all. It stands wide open. No longer would you go to the temple to be in God's presence through the blood of Christ. Your body now becomes the temple and God's spirit now indwells in the temple how good is that? His presence is with you. He guides you because he now resides in you. And it is all through the blood of Christ and his great mercy. The washing of regeneration, Titus 3, 5 says, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 10, 19 through 23. I love the picture that it paints here for us. Therefore, beloved, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. The veil has been torn. That is actually through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is what, church? Faithful. faithful. He is faithful. So now we see what a profound promise this is that Jesus is saying back to our verses there in John 16. 26 in that day you will ask in my name no longer will i ask the father on your behalf now that doesn't mean as we just read this morning in chapter 8 jesus doesn't still intercede for us of course he does in fact he's interceding on things that we don't even know that we need that's how good he is but what jesus means here is we now have direct access to the father in prayer in prayer and if our need is consistent with the will of god and with the purpose of god and it glorifies god well then we saw what he said last week as he promised in verses 23 and 24 whatever you ask of the father in my name he will give to you ask and you will receive our, our, our heavenly father isn't stingy He's not a, a stingy heavenly father, right? 
he is a, a giving father. He will supply all of your needs according to the riches of his glory. Do you have any idea how much the father loves you? He sent his one and only son to die for you. Perfect, spotless, blameless son of God to die to be the sacrifice for our sins. For our sake, God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how much he loves you. And so Jesus tells his disciples just that in verse 27. He says, for the father himself loves you because you have loved me. What is the father's motive for allowing believers direct access to him? Answer, because he loves you. He loves you. God so loved the world that he gave. And what did the father give? Only what was most precious to him, his one and only son. And so Jesus says, because you have loved me, my father loves you. If you love the son, you are loved by the father. And now, as Paul says in Galatians 5, because you are sons, your heart calls out, Abba, Papa, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's the adoption. If you love the son, the father loves you, and he makes you a son or daughter of the king. Just amazing well move on to point number two which is faith he first reassures the disciples of the the father's love for them and and then in verses 27 through 32 we see how that truth in itself begins to strengthen the disciples because after all faith is firmly rooted in the love of god manifested in the person and work of the lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus says there, not only have you loved me halfway through 27, he says, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Let's stop right there for a moment. What did these disciples believe? Did they believe that um, uh, Jesus was a good person? Uh, did they believe he was a new upstart uh, rabbi, teacher, that uh, maybe they should start going and following? No. What's Jesus say they believed? He says, they believe that I came from God. Okay? They believe I came from the Father and have come into the world. That's the incarnation. And they believed that. The Jews didn't believe that. They refused to believe that Jesus was sent from the Father. In John 8, verse 14, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, he answered them saying, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Remember, they believed he came working in the power of Zerubbabel, the power of Satan, 
listen, to, to, to reject the biblical truth that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh is to believe in another gospel. And Paul said, not that there is another. And if you somehow then change who the Lord Jesus Christ is, you can call him Jesus all that you want to. You are still dead in your sins. John says in the very first chapter, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. Now, we've certainly seen these disciples struggling with the Lord's impending death, uh, the fact that he is uh, leading them, but they believe this. They, they believe this earlier. Peter said, uh, you are the Christ, the, the son of the living God. John 6, Peter said on, on behalf of the disciples, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then here we see that they believed that the Lord Jesus Christ had come from God the Father. So that's where they are right now. That's where this group is. Their, their seed of faith is, is, is beginning to sprout. It's, it's a good start. Uh, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and God the Father sent him. Good. That's true. Good place to, to start. Uh, verse 28, he continues. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So the Son of God was sent into the world by the Father to accomplish the work of redemption. Um, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when the Lord's work had finished, he returned to his rightful place, of glory to the right hand of the Father, where he longed to return, by the way. In fact, uh, in the very um, next chapter, John 17, 5, the Lord prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He longed to return. He mentioned it several times, but now here in verse 29, we actually get to witness the disciples as, as their faith is, is slowly beginning to grow, though I think they might have jumped to the conclusion that the, that the, the, the new way of things, that the new order had, had arrived. Uh, either way, the lights are, are, are starting to be turned on. Their hearts are, are starting to be drawn to um, even deeper truths about the Lord. In verse 29, his disciples say, Ah! Oh! <laughs> Now you are speaking plainly. <laughs> in, in other words, now we get it. Uh, now, now we're speaking the same language. You are speaking plainly. You're not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. <laughs> what, what do they mean by that? <laughs> well, we know that you're God. We know that, that God the Father has sent you. Um, maybe we're, we're beginning to understand that the Godhead, the Trinity, the, the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, uh, you know everything. And if you know everything, then you have the whole future probably worked out. It, it's like maybe things are starting to come into focus for them. Verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. <laughs> This is why we believe that you came from God. Um, 
John Calvin, I like what he wrote. He, he wrote, uh, the disciples certainly did not understand fully, yet, did not yet understand fully what Christ had been saying, but although they were not yet capable of this, the mere scent of it refreshed them. And I think that's, I like that. They, they love uh, Theologically, they are correct. Jesus came from God. He knew all things. That, that, that good. But before the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God, uh, their statements went way beyond what their understanding was. And the disciples' actions will later prove the clear disconnection between their words and their faith. Uh, verse 31. Jesus knows the heart. <laughs> Answer them. Do you now believe? That's a prominent now, and it's the equivalent of uh, the eyebrow going up. Do you now believe? It's like Jesus saying, so you believe now, do you? Um, only now? Not before? When we were, you know, raising the dead. Let me ask you this. Was their faith genuine? I, I would say uh, yes, but it was ye of little faith. <laughs> they overestimated their own faith. It was genuine in the sense it was uh, immature. They're drinking milk here while they're trying to put out steak. Um, they know right biblical truths about Jesus. They've spent three years with Jesus, but they haven't quite come. The Spirit has yet to transform them. Um, we have one more verse in this section, verse 32, before we end. And Jesus said, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He will be abandoned by his disciples, but he will not be abandoned by the Father. The Father is with him. The Lord Jesus Christ tells his disciples the hours the hour has come when you will be scattered. And indeed, the hour had come for them to be scattered. For just in a few hours from now, they will go to the garden where Jesus will be arrested. And as Matthew 26, 56 tells us, then all of his disciples left him and they fled. This was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered look we'd like to believe that our faith is fully mature right that no matter what trial comes along whatever issue comes up in your life that that your faith is is strong enough to rest completely and confidently in god but you know what sometimes there's a stumbling sometimes you falter but god is faithful god is faithful he is the author and perfecter of the faith. And when these guys' faith was tested, they did flee. But guess what happened? By Sunday night, we see them all back together, and their faith was strengthened. 
And when the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost, from that moment on, this ragtag group turned the world upside down. These faithless, stumbling, running, hiding, denying, fretting, worrying men. Even when they had faltered, even when they had ran, even when they had denied him three times, our God stayed faithful. And God kept them, and God used them mightily. Well, that brings us to verse 33. And Jesus makes one final promise. Hope. He is, after all, the living hope. Despite all of this coming persecution, Jesus nevertheless announces that he gives to his disciples his perfect peace. Verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. And this is a reminder of what Jesus has already promised them back in chapter 14 of John. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. And if you abide in Christ and he abides in you. Guess what? You've experienced this, haven't you? You've experienced this. Jesus gives us a, a supernatural peace in the midst of the storms of life. And there is not one drop of true peace outside of him. For it is the fruit of the Spirit, and it is for believers. This doesn't mean that we don't have our hearts broken. This doesn't mean that we don't shed tears. But it does mean that the peace that he gives to you is a calm in the depths of your soul. Because you know that he is in control. And that he is for us and not against us. And he will in fact use this testing or trial for good. And the peace of God surpasses all understanding. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. He continues in verse 33. In the world, you will have tribulation. This world tribulation actually means um, pressure. Pressure being moved in. The idea is like you're being squeezed from every side and, and there's no escape. It's translated elsewhere in the New Testament, affliction, persecution, opposition. In the world, you will have tribulation, but, and God is the God of buts, take heart, be of good cheer, be encouraged, be, be comforted. Why? Because of what Jesus did. I have overcome the world. Uh, the world is afflicting you, the world is pressuring you, the world is persecuting you, the world stands in opposition against you, but Jesus says, I 
have overcome the world. And, and the overcome here is referring to the cross and it refers to the resurrection. And it points out that Jesus has already won the battle before the battle has even begun. Notice the verb tense here. Look in, at your Bibles. I have overcome the world. But wait, he's yet to go to the cross. Wait, he's yet to rise from the dead. And yet in Christ's mind, in his heart, in his plans, this is already a done deal. But, 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 but how? Uh, what does it mean? First, it means he has already defeated the ruler of this world, Satan. He said back in John 12, 31, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Earlier in this chapter, uh, 16, verse 11, he said, the ruler of this world has been judged. God promised all the way back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman shall bruise you on the head. Jesus will deal the devil a devastating blow upon the cross. And it is his victory over sin and his victory over death and the grave which renders Satan defeated. He has been judged. That's number one. And then number two, Christ has also defeated the demonic forces of darkness. They have no authority or power over you. You are sealed in the blood of Christ. Colossians 2.15 says, When he, Christ, has disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Christ. Jesus made a public spectacle of the demonic forces of hell with his victory at the cross. Listen, it, it, it doesn't take too long if you, if you look out there and, and <laughs> around the world and start thinking, you know, what in the world is going on? Um, how in the world can things get any worse out there? Listen, he overcame the world, past tense. It hasn't worked out in time. It's worked out all in eternity, however. And at the cross was the ultimate and final victory. It is finished. In the world, you will have tribulation. The world may kill you, turn against you, but I have overcome the system. The system of the world is de uh, defeated, and his victory is our victory. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. 5 tells us for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that he has overcome the world our faith who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God we are overcomers because of our faith in Christ Jesus we are united in Christ in his victory Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. In triumph in Christ. No matter what's going on out there, no matter what happened this week, 
know what happened the week before. I have a peace that prevails in here simply by knowing Christ wins in the end. He wins. And he is the only hope, the living hope. Do you want peace in your life, even in the midst of trial? Yeah, we all do. Do you want joy in your life, no matter how difficult things might be and get? Then you need to be in the arms of a loving God who cares for you, who keeps you, a God uh, whom you have put your faith into, who you've entrusted your eternal soul to, who has forgiven you, who has died for you, who alone defeated sin and death and all the power behind it. And there is only one who can do that, and his name is Jesus. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega. He knows the beginning from the end. He has the whole thing worked out, and he's still seeking and saving that which is lost. I'll close with the words of our Lord. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come and eat with that person and they with him. All right, Don, read it first. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Christ wins. He is the victor. And he invites you with a seat at the table with the Father and the Son. How good is that? Do you have a table? Do you have a seat at the Lord's table with him? Yes. If you don't, if you need prayers of the fellowship, if there is a season or a trouble or a worry, an angst on your heart, he's one. See, too many Christians, unfortunately, today still walking around in chains, though they've been free. You share in the victory. He did the work. He just brings you along for the ride. So if you need prayers, you can join us down front here, and um, the rest of you can please stand, and uh, we got one more song to sing. God bless you. Thank you.